We're back at it again. Welcome back to another episode of the Mondo Show. Do you sense the shift of the atmosphere in the world today? On one hand, you have an atmosphere that is shifting where you're seeing the talks of war and and economic collapse and, and the food shortages that are taking place. On the other hand, there's a shift that is taking place spiritually awakening to the idea that God can forgive our sins. Listen, we are living in what I believe to be one of the most prophetic moments in our time. Parallel, things are shifting, meaning the world is shifting on one hand, but the church on the other hand is also shifting into a moment that is collapsing. The Meaning, things are collapsing in the church world in a way that finally we're allowing God to move. Oh my, if you don't believe me, let me give you this headline. Thousands are gathering for Jesus March in revival in Santa Monica Beach. It is amazing because I come from California. I grew up in East LA, California. And to see this headline, I'm rejoicing at the fact that hundreds and thousands are marching for Jesus, gathering and experiencing a power shift that like we've never seen in this 21st century. Then what's happening in Kentucky is another moment that we can't shift away from. We have to re-engage to understand that God is moving in the lives of young people like never before. My special guest has written a brand new book titled Shift, Repositioning God's People for Revival. Ron McIntosh is the president of Ron McIntosh Ministries. Ron is a noted speaker, writer, teacher, consultant, a powerful man of God, a man that believes that revival is here and things are shifting. And I believe that what he's about to share with you is going to reignite a fire that will shift the way you believe in God. Please help me welcome my special guest via Skype. Ron McIntosh, welcome to the program. Mondo, it's so great to be with you. I've had a friend that's wanted to connect us a long time, so I'm glad to be connected finally. Good to see you. It's good to see you. It's good to... Listen, I got your book right here, and I couldn't help but go to the back of the book, page 271, and you write, We Are at War. What do you mean by that? Well... There's a shift that's taking place, and here's here's what's transpiring. So the word is interesting in itself. It means to change exchange, to transfer position, to um, to change position, to change uh, atmospheres. And I have found that the church is in a place right now where it's become prevalent but not powerful. And we're and so when that takes place, something has to shift. Mm. And so we're, we're now in that process of seeing that shift because there's a war going on, a cultural war that's going on, that's shifting us away from moral values and, and biblical standards. And unless the church wakes up, then it's not going to begin to see what we need to see take place in the time in which we're living. So when a church becomes prevalent but not powerful, we're known behind our four walls but not much outside of them. And so we've got to come back where signs and wonders are no longer optional to endorse the word of God against what's taking place in the world at this time. And so it's, it's interesting to me when you take a look at, for instance, in Acts chapter 14, three, 
it says that uh, that God endorses the word of his grace by signs and wonders for Paul and Barnabas. He says in Romans chapter 15, Paul says in that process, he says, I venture to say nothing except what Jesus does through me, uh, through the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Holy Spirit, I fully proclaim the gospel. And the idea is that we're not fully proclaiming the gospel without signs and wonders taking place to endorse what God is saying during this time. And so it's time for revival. And revival is a word that's bantered around a lot, but it doesn't necessarily mean something because people say, well, it's a four-day meeting uh, that takes place uh, with a guest speaker, or it's a, it's a noted conference with the most powerful speakers in the world. Well, we need those things, but that's not revival. Revival, and it's providential, I think, that we're talking about a book about revival when revival has broken out. <laughs> exactly. And so revival is something that is a revitalization of the church for a divine attack on a wayward culture. That's where the war is. Revival is marshaling forces fatal to the kingdom of darkness. Revival is the reinvigoration of church with truth and power and the presence of God. Wow. What do you think is causing that, that, that is sparking all over the place? Well, one of the things that's transpired is suddenly there came a hunger from a group of people. So when you see something, when you want to see something you've never seen before, you've got to do something you've never done before. And so almost inconspicuously at that campus at Asbury, there was a hunger and there's this consecration that's taking place on that campus. And it, it's amazing. And I just talked to somebody who came back from what's taking place in Asbury. And it was a simple young man who got up and said, I feel like I don't want to live with the kind of sin I'm living with anymore. He began to repent, and suddenly people began to run. And I, I never even sat out to write this particular book, Mondo. Uh, I was sitting in my office uh, just doing business as usual. When the Spirit of God came on me and said, I want you to write a book. I blew it off. I said, Lord, I got six books. I don't need another book. And he came to me a couple of days later. He said, no, I want you to write a book. And I said, uh, but Lord, I kind of blew it off again. And then a third time he came to me and said, I want you to write a book. And I began to sit down. And so I said, all right, I got the idea. I'm going to keep asking me. So I sat down and started to pen a book. And he said, no, no, wrong book. I said, Lord, what do you want me to do? He said, I want you to write a book on repositioning God's people for revival because there's a revival coming to planet earth and you need to get people ready to experience it. And suddenly, you know, it's, there's always somebody who sees ahead of time what God's about to do. And as they begin to let things begin to unfold, it begins to catch on in hunger. Sometimes, sometimes you don't know you're hungry until you drive by and smell the food. Well, there's, there's a group of people who allow you to drive by and when they smell the food, they get hungry and people are suddenly getting hungry for that move of the spirit. Ron, I got to ask you this tough question because I know it's not going to be popular for me to ask this question, but where do we go beyond this revival, beyond this movement that is taking place that people are eating, people are feasting in the presence of God, but by the time they go home, what's beyond that? What's beyond this religious experience that we're watching take place nationwide? Revival is an awakening, but it doesn't end there. An awakening should end in a movement, and that movement is the kingdom of God. So revival is kind of a beginning stage, and I hear people say all the time, say, 
Well, it needs to be something that's perpetual. Revival is not perpetual. It, it helps us to awaken to the operation of the kingdom of God, that we can operate as God intended us to operate from, from the beginning. The passage in Joshua chapter 3, verse 5, uh, that really kind of gives an idea of where we're at right now. And it says, consecrate yourself for tomorrow. I'm going to do great things. It's almost like there's a division in that passage. Consecrate yourself, separate yourself unto God. For tomorrow, I'm going to do great things. And that great thing means, that word in, uh, in Hebrew means, the idea behind it gives you the, the idea of doing something beyond your ability to produce it. So something that's supernatural that takes place. And so God wants at this time to endorse his word with the supernatural that the world will sit up and pay attention. Um, there's a passage that comes out of Acts chapter 3 after the lame man is healed at the gate beautiful. And, you know, Pharisees want to cancel culture then. At the same time, the people want to make them gods. And Peter says, no, no, no. He says, repent. He says, turn to God. He says, and your sins will be wiped out, and I'll send times of refreshing. He said, I may send the Christ. He says, but his, he must remain in heaven until the time comes to restore all things. Well, that says several things. Number one, he says, repent. That's where we're at right now. We're consecrating ourselves. We're finding a call and a need to come back to the way God does things because we are at war with the world. And then secondly, he says, turn to God. And it's not in the Greek, it's not a casual turning to God. It means to turn to God in such a way that you you turn to him in your ways and in his work, in his ways and in his work. He says that your sins may be wiped out. The idea in Greek is to erase. In other words, the enemy has put something against your charge and God erases it. Uh, or culture puts something against your charge and God erases it. He says, so that I may send times of refreshing. That word refreshing means recovery of breath, revive or revival. Then he says, then I may send the Christ. The idea is this. Before the second coming of Jesus Christ, there's going to be a revival that I may restore all things. What's beyond that? He's going to restore all things. He's going to restore the power of God. He's going to restore the gifts of the Spirit. He's going to restore his mores, his, his, his value system. In this time of restoration is what's beyond the revival that has now begun. You write about in chapter three, discerning the season, shifting vision. Why is shifting vision and discerning the season is so important for our everyday life? Yeah, well, in, in First Chronicles chapter 12, it's interesting. David is listing his arsenal of weapons. He's going down through the tribes and their arsenal and what they contribute. He comes to the sons of Issachar. It says the sons of Issachar discerned the times and seasons and knew what Israel should do. And so, um, and, and this is an important thing. So to me, where we're at right now is what I, what I call takes place in Judges chapter 2. In Judges chapter 2 and verse 7, it says there's a generation that grew up that knew God and the things he'd done for Israel. Three verses later, it says another generation grew up who knew neither God or know what he had done for Israel. Another one, another reads, uh, in other words, one generation knew God. The other generation knew about God. And that's where we have been. We are a Judges 2.10 generation, born between moves of the Spirit, that don't fully know what God is doing. 
And so you move through Judges, you get into Judges chapter 6, and there's a phrase that kind of prolificates itself throughout the book of Judges that says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Well, that's relativism, and that's where we are today. Everyone does it. And then it's followed by this little phrase, and they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. When you get into Judges chapter 6, and it says, again, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they're they're under oppression from the Midianites. And so as they're under that oppression, I mean, inflation is going crazy. I mean, they can hardly afford to buy fuel for their chariots. You know, the egg prices are going crazy. And But in the, in the midst of that, God comes to Gideon and says, God is with you, almighty man of valor. And here he is threshing wheat in a, in a wine press. And you, know, you don't thresh wheat in a wine press. That's like, you know, practicing your golf shot in the closet. That, that's not what that's for. He's doing it in private because he's afraid. And he says, well, if you're with me, God, why is all this stuff happening? And oh, by the way, where are the miracles? And I love God because he doesn't say, well, that's because miracles have passed away. He shows him two miracles with the fleece. He amasses 32,000 troops then because now he knows God is with him. And God says, the problem is you've got too many people who are believing the wrong way. And he takes that 32,000 troops and and he takes it down to 300. And when he takes it down to 300 people, then he gives them torches and trumpets. And as they just shine the light and blow the torches, the Midianites destroy themselves and something is sent forth. But to me, where we are most of all is right in Ezekiel chapter 37. In Ezekiel 37, God comes to the prophet, Mondo. And as he comes to the prophet, he says to him, he takes him from one place and puts him in another. Talk about beam me up, Scotty, Star Trek, the next generation. He's in one place. All of a sudden, he's in another. And as he's in, as he's in that other place, God says, here's a valley of dry bones. Well, in Semitic languages, dry bones means emaciation, starvation, or leanness. It's like Psalm 106, verse 15. He sent them leanness of soul. He, he gave them what they asked for, but sent leanness of soul. In other words, he, they got some things they asked for, but they became less than they were. And then all of a sudden, when he when that takes place, he looks at the, he looks at the prophet. He says, "Son of man, can these bones live?" Well, my goodness, that must have been an intimidating question. How did he not know that this was the the bones of the prophets who already flunked the test? You know what I'm saying? So, and so he says, "Son of man," he said, "Can these bones live?" And his response is, "Only you know, Lord." Kind of a a spiritual schizophrenia. In other words, on one hand. I know God can. On the other hand, I'm not sure he'll do it for me. And God, so and now I love God because he doesn't answer the question he asked. He answers the question he should have asked. He says, here's what I want you to do. He says, prophesy, son of man. Prophesy to these bones. And so that's exactly where we are right now. We're prophesying to the bones. We're prophesying to the drug culture. We're prophesying to the culture that's gone woke. We're prophesying to the culture that's gone away from biblical glories. And he says, hear the word of the Lord. And as he hears the word of the Lord, suddenly what happens is bone comes to bone, tendon comes to tendon, flesh comes to flesh. And all of a sudden, here is the body. But he says, then prophesy to the breath, son of man, prophesy to the breath. And as he prophesies to the breath, he stands to his feet, and they stand to their feet, a vast army. That's what's happening right now. God is establishing in this moment of time a vast army to stand against the tide of anti-biblical mores and values to reestablish his kingdom in the earth. 
Listen, when you stop and look at what's happening in our culture right now, uh, Ron, it almost feels like not only a shift taking place in the culture, but it has to take a, a shift in the church to recognize the identity of the shift taking place. How does the church identify the shifts in the atmosphere so we know where to position ourselves in order to be able to make, you know, an impact. Like you mentioned a, a few moments ago, the church has perfected within the church, within the four walls, the music, the preaching, the teaching, the how to reach the laws. But yet outside of those four walls, we go back into this culture that has shifted in ways that we don't look at family the same way. We don't look at men and women identities as the same way. Economically, things are shifting. The nation is shifting. The, the, the very identity that we God created us to be, though it seems like the church and the world has been disconnected, but yet you're talking about a shift, not only in the attitude that we have, in the atmosphere. Let's talk about the identity shift. How do we reposition ourselves to understand what our identity is in the midst of all these changes that are taking place in our culture? Well, you know, it, it, that's a fascinating concept. If you're around me very much, you'll always hear me say something like uh, identity is the answer to everything. Wow. And so this, this becomes such an incredibly important thing because if you rely upon education, you'll get what education can produce. If you rely upon eloquence, you'll get what eloquence can produce. When you rely upon all those other factors, you'll get what they can produce. But it's only when you rely upon God that you can get what God can produce. And we have. I mean, we have gotten, we, we, we know how to create atmospheres. We know how to create the music. We know how to create all those things, but we're relying upon the wrong thing. And so... I, for identity, I use the example in the book of Josiah. Here's an eight-year-old king who becomes the king of, of, of Judah. I, I don't even know what an eight-year-old king does. I mean, does he legalize chewing gum and running in the hallways at school? I mean, what does an eight-year-old king do? I'm not sure. But he becomes king at eight years old. And when he becomes king at eight years old, um, he's an apathetic, do-nothing excuse for a king. And so... Uh, what what he does is his his probably his most exciting thing he can do in his life is to read, you know, Better Homes and Garden or Wallpaper Digest because they're redoing the temple. But as they're they're redoing the temple, Hilkiah the high priest finds the book of the law, and he gives it to Shaphan the high priest who comes to read it to the king. And I don't think he's a boy at this time, but I like to view him as somebody you know laying down to go to sleep, you know eating famous Amos cookies and drinking milk. And, <laughs> and all of a sudden, he reads that passage of the book of the law. And the Bible says he tears his robe and he yells at the top of his lungs. Well, staff probably thought he ran out of, you know, his subscription to Better Homes and Garden. And nobody knows exactly what it is he read. But some say it's Deuteronomy. Some say it's the Pentateuch, the first five books in the Bible. But what, just what, if he read 1 Corinthians 13? or first Kings 13. And in that passage, a little known prophet comes and prophesies 350 years before Josiah is born, saying there's coming a man by the name of Josiah 
who's going to be the greatest reformer that the world has ever seen. So the way I define identity is this, knowing who God is, what he's already done, and who he's made you to be. Mm. You have to know who God is, not about him. You've got to know him. You have to know what he's already done. Stop trying to get him to do what he's already done and receive what he's done by grace through faith. And lastly, you have to know who you are. Before you can change the world, you've got to change you. And this shift in identity is the key launching pad to everything God is doing in this moment in time. And when your viewers begin to realize that we no longer are simply waiting for somebody on the platform to do something, that God, this, the move of God that he's bringing right now is not a move of the platform. It's a move of the people. That's it. And that's what's fascinating to me about Asbury. There's no pronounced names. There's no a great Christian star. There's no television personality, no authors. There's not even a, a known student or faculty member whose leading was taking place. It is simply a move of the Holy Spirit and, pe- a Holy Spirit and people are responding to him. Exactly. Listen, I, I got I to gotta be honest with you, people. You got to be able to have the tools in order to understand what is taking place. Stop trying to figure things out. The Bible has warned us that this type of moves of God will begin to be birthed on the earth as we're watching the days of turmoil and and oppression and all that. At the same time, God would allow his spirit to move to remind us that he is with us. He's the beginning and the end. He's the alpha and the omega. Everything started in Jerusalem. Everything started in Israel. Prophecies have been given. And all of a sudden, when you're in the middle of this prophetic event taking place, you have to find yourself and shift the way you think, the way you carry yourself, the way you talk, the way you communicate, the way you pray. I mean, we can go down the list of all the shifts. And this is what Ron has done for us. He has made an index of things that we can begin to start shifting. For example, shifting positions, shifting identity, which he just talked about right now, shifting the vision, shifting the attitude. Ooh, you touch a nerve on that one. I encourage you to get this book today, Shift, Repositioning God's People for Revival. That means you and I get the book today. I'm going to put a link on the screen. I want you to get the book. I want you to get material in your hand and be able to start learning and being able to understand what things you need to shift in your life that will make a difference. I need you to understand that we're living in a time that if we don't get into what God is doing, we may miss God's moment. It's fear of missing out. One girl said about the Asbury revival, I didn't want to miss God. I didn't want to miss that moment. Yet, you, we can be so busy that we miss what God wants for us in this hour. Ron, my time is flying away. Can you pray for us? Can you pray for those that are watching, that are asking God to shift life, to shift their atmosphere, to shift the way they think about business, to the way they think about relationships, the way they think about revival, because I believe we're in that moment right now that you can spark, you carry an anointing, you carry a word in you that is changing people's lives. Wherever you go, churches are changing. The atmosphere of of wherever God puts you in changes, and I want that change. So can you pray for us? Absolutely. 
Father, I thank you there's a shift coming to the body of Christ. There's a shift coming to America. There's a shift coming to the world. And there's a shift coming to your life. Where you thought you were stuck, I pray in Jesus' name for a shift to come. A shift to come to your life a shift to come to your home, a shift to come to your finances, a shift to come to your health, a shift of the kingdom of God being established. I pray for a shift to come to the United States of America that we see once again the values of the kingdom of God firmly established as only you can do it, Lord. I thank you for such a time as this. You have brought us into this moment a time. And I thank you that what many of us have waited and dreamed and prayed for is unfolding before our very eyes. Father, I thank you that you're shifting the atmosphere so that the whole conversation in America is changing. In Jesus' name. And G, thank you, Ron, for joining me on today's program. My time is gone. Get the book today, Shift, Repositioning God's People for Revival. And I want to make sure you understand people what i'm gonna say to you this is not a religious experience taking place this is an awakening this is a revival this is a shift in the atmosphere for us to come back to god know one thing that god loves you so much he died on the cross for you but more than that three days later he rose from hades from hell to give you eternal life to forgive you of your sin it's time to repent. It's time to turn away from your wicked ways. It's time to come back to the altar and be honest with yourself and say, I haven't been a good person. I have lived a life of immorality. I have lived a life of sin that has separated me from Christ, and I want to come back to him. Read the word. Listen, you have a Bible at home that your grandma gave you. Dust it off. Begin to read what God says about you or your identity. Shift your atmosphere today. Listen, I got to get going, but I want to remind you that without your support, I can't do this. I need your help today. And this month I'm offering this coffee table book entitled Jerusalem Rising. A friend of mine, Doug Hershey, put together an amazing book of before and after of Jerusalem. Watch this video and I'm going to come back and say goodbye. I'm Doug Hershey, author of the best-selling book, Israel Rising, Ancient Prophecy, Modern Lens, that looks at the revival of this land and combines an ancient prophecy, regional history, and stunning then-and-now photo comparisons. I'm pleased to announce a second volume in the Ancient Prophecy, Modern Lens series, a brand new photo book, Jerusalem Rising. In Israel Rising, we looked at the physical revival of this land. In Jerusalem Rising, we looked at the prophesied restoration of the city and why it has arrested men's hearts through the centuries, even in its desolation. To have a closer look at all this city has endured, I've obtained the oldest photos of Jerusalem ever taken, some from 1844, 1850s, and 1860s, even into the early 1900s. With an Israeli adventure photographer, we went back and recreated these angles, some for the first time ever, to show how the dramatic changes are happening in this city. Today, according to prophecy and against all odds, Jerusalem is rising again. And it's just the beginning. See the evidence for yourself. I gotta get going, but remember, visit ptlshop.com mondo, support the program, stand with me this month to be able to just say hello to you on social media 
or any messages that you send me. I love you, but remember this, no matter what's going on around you, keep the faith. It's going to be all right. Bye-bye.